0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to Season 10 of Be Heard Talk with Selena Hill, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip-hop, AOC, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, I'll be discussing race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic black millennial perspective, and I give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave your comments on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and I will read them throughout this show, whether they're good, they're bad, whatever. I'm super excited to be here with you all today to discuss everything from the biggest stories of the week, from the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict to the tragic police shooting of 16 year old Micaiah Bryant to LeVar Burton guest hosting Jeopardy. Oh, he will guest host Jeopardy. So we're excited about that. And later on in the show, we'll question the call to not just defund police, but abolish police with our special guest, Bria Baker, an activist and author. Now, please support Be Her Talk by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Be Her Talk. Your support through a small donation will help us continue to support and amplify the causes that you care about. Now, today I'm joined by Be Her Talk correspondent Evan Mastronardi. He is the co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash and a Bronx organizer for Rank the Vote NYC. How's it going, Evan?
1: What's up, Selena? Thank you for having me. Thank you for putting up with all my texts and my links and everything for being on the show today. I know I sent you a lot, but always good to be here. And everybody follow Let's Not Be Trash.
0: Absolutely. And we also have a very special guest correspondent joining us today. Her name is Nisha Gupta. She is a student at New York University majoring in media, culture, and communications with a minor in law and society. And she happens to be Be Her Talk's very own social media marketing intern. She is making her debut on the actual show. How's it going, Nisha?
2: Great. Thanks, Lena, for having me. I appreciate it. Hi, Evan.
1: Hey. <laughs>
0: All right. So we're going to kick things off with our news roundup. This is a time where we unpack the biggest stories of the week. The ones that made us laugh, cry, go on a Twitter Twitter rant, made us delete or block some of our family members for saying something crazy. Yeah, we're going to unpack those stories. And we're going to start with the Derek Chauvin conviction. So on Tuesday, people around the world rejoiced after former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd back in May 2020 by placing his knee on George's neck for nearly 10 minutes. Now the conviction was a historic milestone, making Chauvin the first white police officer in Minnesota to be convicted of murdering a Black person. Evan, what was your initial reaction to the verdict?
1: Well, when I heard that the jury came back with the decision quite quickly, at that moment I I thought it was looking positive that there there would be a conviction. Did I did I think it would be on all three counts? Wasn't sure. Thank goodness it was, but it was not a great. It it, it was it was a positive sign and feeling for the Floyd family. But overall, towards the greater movement of holding police accountable, it was quite fleeting because it's one person, one situation. And as we know, like right before, as this was happening, there was another instance of a public safety failure. And throughout the week, there were countless others. So any joy from this was quite momentary.
0: I agree. We won the battle, but not the war. Nisha, what was your initial reaction to the verdict? Were you
2: surprised? I honestly wasn't. I felt like uh, Chauvin was going to be the sacrificial lamb for this because just the public outrage was more so than we've seen in the past. I felt like this was going to be a verdict to just qualm the public. And to echo Evan's sentiment, I don't feel like this was – you know, really justice or solved anything. It was kind of a minor solution, especially with the shooting of Makia Bryant, literally an hour after it happened. Um, yeah. So I, I, w- I figured that they were going to convict him, but I kind of, I knew that this wasn't going to change anything. Yeah. I
0: would say I was extremely surprised because number one, officers do not get convicted for, ki- for killing people, especially not black people, or even fatally shooting them, or, or just paralyzing them, as we've seen in the Jacob Blake case. Um, not only do they really get convicted, a lot of times they're not even indicted. So I was very surprised, especially as someone who's been actively following a lot of these police shooting and vigilante shootings um, for you know almost ten years, starting with Trayvon Martin, and we saw George Zimmerman walked away free, you know, acquitted. Uh, you know, Michael Brown's killer nothing happened. Breonna Taylor, you know, the list just goes on and on. So despite all of the evidence, I literally, I was very, very surprised. And then I just felt a just a feeling of dismay come over me because I'm like, hold on to get a conviction for a police, a fatal police killing. It took the whole world to rally around this one black man who we all watch lynched in real time. Not only that, but it took what almost a dozen police officers to break that blue shield of silence and that blue wall to speak up against it. So it literally took all the manpower we have in society to fight for one person's humanity. So if the bar is that high, it did not give me hope for anyone, for anybody after that and you know b- both of you have talked about the shootings that happened and the killings that happened afterward and we're going to get to that but before we do uh evan what what do you say is the next step in the flat in the fight for police reform you know we, we convicted derek chauvin he still needs to be sentenced by the way i want to mention that but right. what's the next step here
1: well i wanted to add something and, it, and you already kind of set the foundation is that this is a dangerous precedent right like you said first time white officer was charged convicted for killing a black person in a police trial and what did it take for that to happen it took a bystander a young bystander who would probably be traumatized for a certain portion of her life to film this whole interaction watching this man get lynched on a public street for the world to see that's the precedent that is a dangerous precedent. It cannot be the precedent. We must allow for a much lower, well, really holding law enforcement to a much higher standard. Because if that's, if that's the precedent, how many more black people must die for, that to, for us to find any kind of accountability? So, and going forward, it's restructuring the whole system that allowed for Derek Chauvin and all those officers around him, by the way, to just watch him do this, to be so emboldened to do that and not think that they would face penalty we have to restructure that system of internal accountability which ultimately as we will get to later will, will look like i believe abolishing the entire system as well right.
0: so eric christopher webb left a comment via linkedin saying this is exactly what i kept saying it took the whole world to protest. I know Amari also left a comment. Amari uh, left a Amari com- Lewis left a comment via LinkedIn saying you can't reform slavery, abolish it. Policing is just part of the puzzle. Abolish slavery of all Form. Thank you so much for those very powerful comments, and Amari. we're actually going to spend the later half of this show talking about the call to abolish police, what that really looks like, and we'll, we'll talk about how we can re-imagine, reimagine public safety, so stay tuned for that. Um, I know Gabriel left a comment as well via LinkedIn, and uh, let's just go to that one. On, Gabriel says cops were set up post-slavery to protect white people and their properties. Cops were initially set up to keep black people in line still today, according to history, hence systemic racism. And you're right. All that, what we're seeing now is just the manifestations of historic and systemic racism just coming to play because we know why police were created and we know how problematic it is. I will say after George Floyd, um, after this verdict came and Derek Chauvin was found guilty for murdering him, the next steps definitely have to be, at the very least, passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Now, this act, um, which Congress needs to pass, it would implement sweeping changes to federal policing standards by, one, prohibiting racial profiling at every level of law enforcement to banning chokeholds, no knock warrants at the federal level as well, overhauling qualified immunity for officers and creating a national police misconduct registry. So that's something that we should, we could and should all be rallying behind in the next steps. So without further ado, you know, Both Nisha and Evan talked about Micaiah Bryant because it was literally minutes before we celebrated the conviction of Derek Chauvin that Micaiah Bryant, a 16-year-old black teenager living in foster care in Ohio, was fatally shot by police. Now, body camera footage shows that Nicholas Reardon, who was a white officer, he arrived at the chaotic scene with several people engaged in a heated fight outside of Micaiah's foster home. Now, as he gets out the vehicle, Makaya is seen lunging at a woman with what appears to be a knife in her hand. Uh, The woman is pushed to the ground and it appears that a man kicks that woman while she's down. Then seconds later, Makaya lunges at another woman with the knife. That's when the officer opened fire, shooting Micaiah four times. Now, some experts say after watching the footage, they argue that Micaiah was armed and seemed to be acting erratically. And in fact, a neighbor... Who, who saw the, the chaotic events, witnessed it, and then watched the security footage from his own vantage point, um, he said that he believes that the that police officer had no choice but to fire and to act. Uh, I also want to note that we here at BR talk decided and opted not to show that traumatizing video of Micaiah being shot down again at only 16 years old. So Evan, you know, was the officer justified in opening fire to save the woman who Micaiah was apparently attacking.
1: Look, make no mistake. This was a dangerous encounter. And that's what public safety is. Public safety involves dangerous encounters. But when a public safety officer, which we will talk about later, how that can look different, arrives at a scene, the idea must be to preserve life at all costs. That is both um, equally both the woman in pink in this case and Micaiah's life. Now, in the current system, is the officer justified? Of course, the current system will justify him because even the law in Ohio justifies him. We talked – deadly force met with deadly force. That's the law there. But in the vision of public safety I have, no. I grew up in Bronx public – middle school, elementary school, my friend carried a knife with him bigger than the one Micaiah had there. He would be dead. I saw Dean's break up fights. I saw teachers break up fights. I saw security officers break up fights. We need to find a way to break up fights with with teenagers who don't have automatic weapons, like the white people who go home or to jail safe. We need to find ways to break up these fights without someone dying. So if it's a tragedy, then we got to do something to make it never happen again.
0: Yeah, no, I 100 percent hear you. But, you know, Nisha, a lot of people are saying, you know, this this story's uh, the lines are a little murkier. We hear a lot of people arguing, even those of us on the left saying that, you know, this officer made a split second decision, arguably to save another black woman's life. Um, but we know that the problem is, you know, police are trained to shoot, to kill, not to wound. Um, and he was following the law, which Evan just pointed out, which says that police can use deadly force to protect themselves and others. Um, Nisha, what do you say to those who believe the shooting of Micaiah Bryant was justified?
2: Yeah, um, I say, look at history, a lot of oppressive systems that perpetuate racism and inequality have been legal in the eyes of the law. That does not mean that it's right. Um, And this is the case when it comes to cops shooting um, civilians that are in a, in a, in a fight, um, I also think that it's important to realize that this girl is 16 years old and she is being adultified by the media and she's 16. And I've read multiple reports that the other two girls in the fight were 20, 20 and 22. So I think that that's important to also talk about. Well, yeah, the police arrived on scene and saw this. If you look at the context. I would be on Micaiah's side. And so I, I think it's important that even though in the eyes of the law, this was quote unquote justified, I challenge why people are so okay with that and why they're okay with uh, police acting as judge during executioner in the heat of the moment.
0: Great points. And, you know, to your point, Nisha, about black girls being adultified, I actually want to Spend some time unpacking that, right? Because it has to do with layers of gendered racism. As mm-hmm. a result, Black women, Black girls are actually viewed as more threatening, more aggressive, more mature, and less innocent than their white counterparts. Uh, and in fact, a study that came out in 2017 by the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Equality uh, said this, and it robs you know Black girls of their freedom to be children. That report also said that Black girls as young as five years old are held to adult-like standards and in turn receive harsher punishment punishments for their behaviors. Uh, as a result, they're suspended, they're arrested at school. And when I'm talking about things like throwing a paper or speaking up, right? Normally, you know, children are so like, okay, you're speaking up out of turn. Sometimes they even praise for being, you know, courageous or smart, or at least they're white. The white students are, but when it comes to black girls, it's like they're seen as sassy or disrespectful for speaking out, right? And and then when they do things that normal children do, like throwing stuff or hitting, um, again they're arrested, put in handcuffs while in grade school. So I, I do want to just spend some time there because that's an issue with the way media and many people are portraying Micaiah, um, who was only sixteen, um, and who you know because of you know her size that's what they're saying about her like oh well she was adult um you know evan just to spend some time unpacking that you know the other side of the argument is you know when police shoot you know sh- when they sh- were showing up to the scene they couldn't tell you know how, who you know who was doing what how old anybody was how were they supposed to act
1: i'm I, i'm less concerned about i think you know in in that moment, she is lunging at a person with a knife. That is, she is an aggressor in that moment. But that doesn't mean that death. It, like Nisha said, the the cops are not the roll up executioners. That's not their job. Their job is to de escalate. And every time we see cops roll up, especially when it's in communities of color or there's black people involved, it seems like it's straight up escalation. It goes straight to escalation. What I, I want, I know we'll talk about this more later. But what about a vision of safety that's more like, like I said, the public school I grew up in, where you have four unarmed security people pulling people away, sitting them down, and talking about what happened? Disarming them, yes, sitting them down. The the fact that, also, as Nisha said, this acceptance of, okay, we're just okay with that. Why are we just okay that a 16 year old was shot in an altercation? Where, like I said, she was not like, any of these white school shooters rolling up with an assault rifle where there was absolute imminent mass danger. Why are we just accepting that? I think there are many alternatives to how this could have went down. But within the limited confines of how policing is, it's very easy to think what other choice did he have? Because what other choice were his superior officers giving him? Not many.
0: So Randy left a comment Via LinkedIn, Randy Smith Randolph says uh, she was being attacked by two old women and was Micaiah was defending herself. She called the police and she was the one killed. I've also seen those reports as well. Um, Andrea also left a comment. Uh, Andrea says systemic racism allows the mistreatment of black people and the misperception. Of black people because you're right you know that implicit bias when you know micaiah bryant was 16 soon as you know this police officer showed on the scene he's opening fire you have kyle rittenhouse who's what 17 um walking around with a gun after killing people and you know he he was fine I, i read reports that um Police offered him water at one point and thanked him um, for for whatever it is that he was supposed to do, like supposedly protecting businesses uh, during you know protests and riots. Uh, but meanwhile, he literally killed people and was brought into custody without a, without harm. And you know, Dylan Ruth, was another mass serial killer uh, who was very young and was not only brought in without harm, but taken to pick up Burger King. So it's like, we cannot ignore um, the differences and the discrimination that young Black teenagers go through um, in comparison to teenagers their age who just happen to be white. Um, very sad, very sad. And we're we're gonna continue this discussion again later on where we talk about again, how can we reimagine public safety? How can we imagine a world without police where black and brown people are not disproportionately murdered? So we'll talk about that a little later. Um, I do wanna just move on to another story. A pregnant woman was literally shackled by police while in labor and she has settled... Uh, with New York City. So this black woman says her wrists and ankles were shackled by police for hours while she was in active labor at a hospital. Um, According to a CNN report, the woman was arrested two days past her due date in late 2018 on a misdemeanor assault charge that was later dismissed and sealed. She went into labor the day of her arrest. Now the mother too told CNN, she ended up being forced to give birth, handcuffed to a hospital bed with only one nurse holding her hand. The father of her child was not there. The physician who was giving her prenatal care wasn't there. She wasn't even in the hospital of choice where she planned to deliver. Not only that, but the misdemeanor that she was charged with, it actually happened a week prior to the date she was arrested. And then when she was put into the cell, um, I think it was during a time of a holiday. And she said that most of the people on duty were at a holiday party. So she was literally you know, having contractions. Another woman who was in a cell was helping her count them down and keeping her calm. And it wasn't until somebody was available, a corrections officer came to her cell and saw her um, in labor. And before you know, taking her off to a hospital, She was like, you know, open up your legs, let me examine and let me, you know, basically prove that the baby was coming out. And then (laughs) she was taken to the hospital and cuffed. I read this story and hold on, let me, before I even get to my commentary. So she sued, uh, she won $750,000 from the city of New York and also from the NYPD. I read this story disgusted. I was absolutely disgusted by the inhumane treatment again. Of black women, literally in labor, no threat, absolutely no threat, and to be treated like this, it is inhumane. Nisha, what is, what is your reaction to this story and the settlement?
2: No, I, I completely agree. When I read the t- part about how she had to undress on in a cell and show the corrections officer that she was giving birth, just to even go to the hospital, she was there for hours. It was horrific. And the fact that black women are three to five times more likely to die from pregnancy complications than white women is a known fact, I feel. And and it, it makes me even more angry for her that she was denied the proper care that she... Planned so desperately to have as well. Um, I read a quote that said that this baby was born out of violence. And I agree. There was, it was just violence. It was unnecessary. What is a woman going to do when she's giving birth? I don't think she can run or flee. It was horrific. No,
0: you're right. And that quote was provided by one of her attorneys to CNN. Uh, One of her attorneys said, and I quote, the first breath that this baby had on this earth was born out of violence. Um, Evan, what are your thoughts on this story and the settlement that she received?
1: I mean, it's just the continued dehumanization of Black people by police and law enforcement dehumanized her, dehumanized her child. It's, it's ridiculous. And I, I challenge anyone to believe for a second if there was a white woman going through this that those would be the circumstances she would be in the, and if she was the entire masses would be on her side crying for her it is just so dehumanizing and ridiculous that we have just almost come to see this as par for the course of someone in police custody this is, custody. This is why I, people need to add all these pieces together to see the full picture not just, oh, Kaia had a knife. No, no, no. She should have survived just like many white kids who are in similar conflict survive. George Floyd should have survived. This child should not have been born through violence. All of these things are connected and people need to put those pieces together for the lives of black people.
0: Absolutely. So we're actually gonna end the news roundup segment on a lighter note and on a high note. Uh, Lavar Burton uh, will actually be guest hosting Jeopardy. So, following a months long crusade led by Black Twitter, it was announced that LeVar Burton will be one of the guest hosts of Jeopardy. Uh, months ago, a change.org petition was launched in support of him, which has garnered over 200, I believe, about 250 thousand signatures. Evan, why was it important for the Reading Rainbow luminary and television icon to get the opportunity to step into Alec Trebek's shoes for a guest stint?
1: He is the perfect fit. I hope he gets a permanent stint. I grew up with LeVar Burton and Reading Rainbow and a very short side, not safe for work for, for both the loss of DMX and the celebration of LeVar Burton there happens to be a mashup of Reading Rainbow by DMX, but that's all I'll say. Um, so YouTube it and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, but I think that LeVar Burton, he, he's, the, he's the perfect fit for this. The the optics of it, of course, also as a, a black man who has promoted literacy and education, his entire life will be important for young people watching this show. And I also think that it shows that sometimes the public know better than the people than the producers and everything. The public sometimes have a better imagination of who is best for certain roles, not just here, but in general, than the producers and executives and people in power.
0: Absolutely, agreed. Nisha, what are your final thoughts on LeVar Burton guest hosting Jeopardy?
2: Yeah, I agree with the sentiments. I think that LeVar Burton has a similar sense of um, warmth that Alex Trebek Showed during Jeopardy that Lavar Burton is going to just knock out of the park. I also think there's something beautifully ironic with the fact that Lavar has taught so many children um, important life lessons and knowledge and facts, and that he gets to further that on Jeopardy as well. Um, I think that he's just the perfect person for it, and I signed the pe- petition, so I'm I'm excited. Yay! This show was part of the
0: solution here, and and those taking action. I'll say that you know not enough qualified black people get opportunities like, you know, hosting Jeopardy or some of the iconic roles that he played in Star Trek. So yes, we need more representation because representation matters. So thank you, Disha. Thank you, Evan, for joining me for the news roundup. We are going to keep things moving because there were a few stories this week that made me say, really? First up, Oklahoma and Florida passed a law that makes it legal for drivers to run over protesters, literally. So Florida is floriding again, and Oklahoma is not far behind it. Are we shocked? The bill that would give drivers immunity if they would give drivers immunity if they feel threatened and run over a protester during a demonstration was signed into law this week by Oklahoma Governor. Kevin Stitt, as reported by WFLA 8. Given that most protests around the country are in fact peaceful until counter-protesters bring violence and chaos, what is threatening about peaceful protesters in the street? Really? And another thing, because we here at Be Her Talk love to drag Chet Hanks he actually slid into Lizzo's DMs, and we're going to talk about that. So, uh, please release us from the shackles that is Chet Hanks' antics. Right after Lizzo gave us all a laugh, admitting that she drunkenly slid into Chris Evans' DMs, Chet Hanks let Lizzo know that he he would be happy to stand in for Chris anytime. What seems to be what seems like a bat signal for after Tom Hanks' son went off, and we all had front row seats to Chet pandering to black women again while being sued by his ex for abuse, who is, you guessed it, a black woman. Really? Can you guys please uninvite Chet to the cookout now? And lastly, This TikTok trend has us all asking, really? So the girls on TikTok have finally lost it. Well, let's get specific. There is a new TikTok trend where young women are saying the craziest things they've ever done for a man. Let's, Let's play some of those videos. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. I remember when I remember I remember when I lost my mind They are losing it on TikTok sis really I just want to say there are things that we can just take to the grave we don't need to know everything girl Really Now That concludes the really segment. And before we jump into this, our main topic about abolishing police, I wanna just say there's something that doesn't make sense that we need to make sense. If the bar is set low in Georgia, then it's Governor Brian Kemp who is 16 feet below that. Georgia has slaves in the governor's mansion. Georgia's broken prison system is one of the biggest portions of its labor force. The governor's mansion is literally staffed by prison. Those who are incarcerated, who dress in normal clothes and a butler tux included so that people don't know. Now there was a report according to Sean Watley uh, via Georgia state prisoner in 2011. He says the biggest inmate job of them all is governor's mansion detail, a minimum of 20 inmates who are all serving life sentences do everything at the mansion from washing cars to cutting grass to wearing a tuxedo, acting like a butler. It's just horrible. It's disgusting. It's pathetic. And and sadly, this has aged accurately. Uh, You know, that's how they started off. And they continue to do this now. So we're literally dealing with modern day slavery. And it's it's no secret. It's been talked about. It's actually not talked about enough. Prison labor is a huge industry that is exploited at all corners. In this instance, and others across this country, state leadership is at the front of the exploitation line. Does slavery still exist in the deep South? Well, the answer to that is yes. And we're not the first to ask this question or to talk about it. We just want it all to make sense. Very sad there. And now without further ado, we're actually going to keep things going with our main topic and our featured guest. And before we yeah, introduce her, I'm super excited to talk to her. Um, you know, I, I just want to give some context and some background to the abolish the police. I know you guys have been leaving comments uh, throughout the show and are very excited to talk about this. Um, so, we know that the institution of policing has been inherently inequitable and deeply rooted in racism and white supremacy from its inception. The advancements of technology within recent years have only further affirmed that the system disproportionately surveils, antagonizes, and terrorizes communities of color. Even while former police officer Derek Chauvin was on trial for the murder of George Floyd, we've seen a number of other cases of police brutality and violence. We watched police use lethal force against 20-year-old Dante Wright. We watched Army Lieutenant Carzon Azario, who identifies as Black and Latino, be stopped, pepper sprayed, handcuffed, and dehumanized during a routine traffic stop. We also saw video of 13-year-old Adam Toledo fatally shot by police. And then less than 30 minutes before Derek Chauvin was pronounced guilty, yet another Black person was dead at the hands of police and I'm talking about 16-year-old Makaya Bryant. She was one of at least 6 people who were fatally shot by officers across the country in the 24 hours after jurors reached a verdict in the murder case against Chauvin. Then the next morning, a 42-year-old Black father identified as Andrew Brown Jr. was shot and killed when deputy sheriff in by deputy sheriffs in eastern North Carolina. An eyewitness said that he was literally shot as he was driving away and trying to get away from the police. This only proves that although the the Chauvin verdict was a crucial juncture in the national conversation about race, policing, and the use of force, it has not reconciled the decades and decades of police terror that Black people have been and continue to be subjected to. That's why many activists are calling for a complete overhaul of the system of policing as we know it. The calling to move further, move farther and farther from just defending the police. They say we must eradicate the system of policing as we know it in order to truly protect and serve our communities. They argue that policing doesn't work. Predominantly Black neighborhoods are over policed when it comes to surveillance and social control, but then again, we're under police when it actually comes to emergency services and situations. So to help us with this conversation about the police abolition movement, we're joined by Bria Baker, an organizer, activist, and author who has contributed to dozens of electoral and advocacy campaigns, including the 2017 Women's March the 2018 student walkouts against gun violence and Jamani Williams' successful bid for New York City Public Advocate. Rhea also writes about race, gender, sexuality, and public safety for Harper's Bazaar L and Refinery29. Thank you so much, Rhea,
3: for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. And I mean, even the way that you just set the stage for this conversation, you just made the case for abolition right there. So I could just drop the mic and just you know, get off of this, but I'm excited for this.
0: Yeah. So I actually want to start Ria by just sort of defining what is police abolition Mm -hmm. and how does it
3: differ from the call to defund the police? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to answer your second question first. The difference between these two, it's kind of like squares and rectangles. Um, People who want to defund the police, that is a tactic towards abolition, but it's not gonna get us all the way there. And so all uh, squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares, it's like that. Um, So we wanna defund the police because that's gonna get us closer to a world with full abolition, which is a world where there is not smaller police forces, but literally no police forces, no armed police forces um, as we know them. And we're replacing that with, Media, community mediators, uh, violence interruptionists, um, people who do de-radicalization work, people who do transformative justice and restorative justice work. Um, there's so many different ideas of what that would look like, but it's just that we can't have this centralized um, and and um, an unaccountable force that is policing and claiming to protect and serve us. And we say police abolition, but it also includes prisons and other forms of... Um, any form of incarcerating or surveillance. So it's really that entire industrial complex. Um, So that will include ICE, that will include detention centers, that will include juvenile centers, that will include Sheriff's offices, districts, like there there will be a completely different version of the U.S. criminal legal system once we have fully abolished the police. But once we've defunded the police, we've gotten ourselves halfway there. But we still have to do that reinvestment and understand, well, what are we funding if we're not funding police?
0: So Randy left a comment via LinkedIn that I wanted to go to mm-hmm. Randy Smith Randolph says, I pray for policing the police in overturning the deep blatant corruption in the system. Stop killing us. I know that Anthony mm-hmm. also left a comment that I want. Do so we have Anthony's comment. Okay. Maybe not, but um, you know, Thank you so much, Bria, for giving that, that
3: definition and that sort of breakdown. Uh, Can I have some I would... thoughts on Randy's comment? If oh, I sure, could yeah, because I see that narrative, um, that policing the police, and that was definitely something that I had initially as well, where I'm inspired by the Black Panther Party, um that was one of the first major forms of advocacy that they were doing they were doing cop watching and this idea that we can police the police and what i learned from the black panthers was that the police cannot be policed because ultimately at the end of the day we're depending on police to turn each other in to hold each other accountable and hoping that when they do that the system will allow them to do so and i'll just speak for myself in new york we know um edwin raymond who is um, a former NYPD officer. Actually, no, I think he's still a current NYPD officer. And he was one of the um, less than 10 NYPD officers who were trying to call out the continued stop and frisk um, racist procedures. And he did that and he faced the retaliation. He faced... um, you know, potentially being fired, not being allowed access to promotions that he absolutely qualified for. And so you realize that when the police try and turn each other in, which is already a rare scenario, um, they're not getting a lot of support to do that the way that whistleblowers typically don't. And so when when you know that police are working with district attorneys, if you are expecting a district attorney to carry out that case and defend the public um, against someone that they have worked with for 10 plus years, who they depend on to push their cog forward, you realize that like, how, how is that possible for us to expect the police to hold themselves accountable? And how do we think that we're ever going to get the the power to be able to hold them accountable? Community yes. um, boards that are number one, already rare, there are not many community boards that have police oversight. They're either not elected boards, so they are appointed people by those who are in power and are looking to um, sort of keep the status quo going, or those are people who are trying very hard to make that change happen. And they're realizing they don't have the subpoena power. They don't have the resources to actually do the deep investigating that is necessary to uncover this. And even looking at right. George Floyd as a perfect example, the first white officer yeah. um, who was held accountable in Minnesota history for killing an unarmed black man. Um, and that took Ten months of advocacy, like global advocacy. So we have to do this every time if we want justice. And Derek Chauvin was one of only fifteen police officers who has been actually convicted of killing someone, in spite there being, I think, fifteen thousand police killings in that same time span. So when we think about it, it, it actually made me so exhausted to realize like, wow, it's going to take this to get justice every time. Like we have to do this for every single family that, that needs justice. It's, it's, yeah, so it's, not sustainable.
0: it's It's not. And you know, Dimples 961 left a comment, uh, to the point you were making, she says, retrain the police to protect, not attack. And I think Bria, what you're saying is no, we can't retrain. We need to eradicate the entire system. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanna get Evan into the conversation as well. Um, You know, when when people, you know, hear the term abolish police, I think some of us interpret that very literally. Um, And I wanna get your take on it, Evan. Do you see it as something literal or do you see it more as rhetoric used to frame the way we think about police safety? Where do you stand on it?
1: Well, I think uh, as Bray already said, defund to abolition right it's like it's it's a pathway to there so i don't think um i believe Paige said this also on the show last time it's not like blink and the police are gone i mean it is this must be the goal to restructure public safety so that the police as we know it have no role in it and i agree with her i i've spoken to edwin raymond uh i'm a supporter of his and i think that What his situation shows, because it completely eradicates this notion of the bad apple, right? Because if police really wanted to be good police and support good police, you would have police unions across the country, officers across the country supporting Edward Raymond and the NYPD 12. They would be so outspoken that this cop was being the quote unquote good cop. You saw none of that. The police didn't have his back. The police unions didn't have his back. His supervisors didn't have his back. Most of those cops from the NYPD-12 quit. Edwin was active duty. I believe he may be. I know now he's running for city council. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like that that alone shows that the entire system is not behind better, less violent no brutal policing it is it is showing that brutality and racism should be the status quo and if that is the system the system must be destroyed
0: so if that's the case bria then what does a world without police look like
3: Mm -hmm. i love this so there are so many examples of this already i'm gonna give a few concrete ones because right now they're isolated Um, but then we can talk about what that looks like altogether. so i went to yale And Yale has a alcohol policy that says, we know that the students are going to drink underage. And what we don't want happening is that students who drink underage, who need medical attention, are afraid to seek medical attention because they're afraid to go to jail. We want students to know that our first and foremost priority is your safety. And that means that no matter what you come to us, um, whether it was an illicit drug, whether it's a drug that you're not supposed to be having at this age or period, come to us for help. The worst thing that will happen is we may have a conversation about alcohol abuse um, and drug abuse, and you may need to do some community service in that way, right? But you're not going to um, have this on your record. Your life won't be ruined because you drank under the age. And that is something that, first of all, we don't even see on most other college campuses, but we don't even see that nationally. And if we did, just thinking of Um, the amount of people who drink and drive, the amount of people who, I mean, that's just like one microcosm example of it. But the way that I experienced it at Yale was that it really had a dynamic effect that people understood we're not going to deter people doing this crime. um, But what we can do is deter people getting harmed. And that's another thing that is really important to abolitionists. In this World without police and prisons, we don't think of things in the sense of crime because the reality is that there are a lot of crimes that don't ever harm someone. Um, and there are a lot of things that do harm people, and no one ever is accountable for it because it's not a crime. And so, in this world, we're first of all figuring out like, is it harmful inherently? for anyone under the age of 21 to be drinking? Or is it that we've put this rule in place so that generally speaking, people whose brains are still developing are not being influenced by this. But ultimately we know that some are going to, and if they do, we would rather they come to us. That is an example of an abolished world. That's an example of, we don't need police to keep people safe when it comes to alcohol use. We can have actual adult conversations about the fact that like, you're gonna do what you're gonna do, you're 18, at minimum. And so if you do this, do it safely. The same thing as sort of like the abstinence versus, um, you know, consent and sex positive conversation. Like that's an example of abolition when we think about it. And I, th- I think people think um, when they think of abolition, they think of like murderers, robberies, and like sexual assault. And that's, those are real things to address. And and those are things that abolitionists are actively working on and and considering the fact that like Number one, our current world doesn't stop murder, robbery, and sexual assault. So how can we build a system that actually addresses those things? And some of the so people, when they think of like, oh, abolition is like replace police with like another police-esque force. But sometimes it's like, wait, do we need a police force for this? Or do we need better curriculum in schools to talk to young people about sex in a way that doesn't have them grow up and like abuse other people?
0: And, and Bria, to your point, because I, I do, and I'm glad you you brought up that counter argument about uh, how do we account for the real violence and harm that does perpetuate in society? And like you said, front of mind when we were talking about abolishing police are the murderers, uh, the killers, the robbers, and those you know rapists. So you know, in a world without police, who do we call when that type of ongoing violence is happening in real time?
3: In a world without police, and I know this is going to sound like very pie in the sky, but like if we've actually achieved it in a world without police, that is happening so rarely because we've addressed it before it happened. And that I think is the biggest difference between reformists and abolitionists is that people with reform, are they're like, we can't imagine a world where people are not raping people. So now it's just like, what do you do when someone's raping you? And the reality is like, if you're being raped, you're not calling anyone. Like you're being raped. And I think that's like a conversation we have to have is like, if someone's being shot, they're not calling someone, they're being shot. If someone's being robbed, they're like addressing that in real time. So now our question that we're really asking is like, do we want to address the harm after it's happened or before it's happened? In a world without police, we know that some people still are going to murder and we're going to have a, not a 911, but a three digit number where people can get access to like, this is what's happening to me, direct me to the person who's actually go supportive for this moment and you know in for example, in New York City we have violence interruptionist groups that like in in Queens, in Brooklyn, in the Bronx you can call Life Camp you can call Gmac and they will have someone come and break up armed fights. they will have someone break up domestic violence disputes like we have those systems. but like in this world we're hoping that we don't have to defend on them and we're asking ourselves why are people raping one another? why are people killing one another? why are people robbing one another? some of these things are crimes of opportunity, robberies we can actually address by meeting people's needs because you don't need to rob people if you have all of your needs met. But like what is happening in our society that people are like in mass, like one in three young women are going to experience this, that people in mass are like entitled to the bodies of others. We can't address that by providing a three digit number. We have to address that by saying, what are we not telling boys when they're 13, when they're 14, when they're 15, when they're 16, that they're growing up and doing this at colleges, campuses, on dark streets. Like, that's the deeper question that we have to answer, because my hope is that less women need the three digit number in the first place.
0: I'm right there with you, Rhea. And I do think that takes uh a a strong level of education and reforms to transform these communities Mm -hmm. where it's happening like you said we have to retrain um the way boys are taught to look at women and Mm -hmm. fight against you know toxic masculinity and like you said if people had enough resources they wouldn't be robbing uh and these other things but in the interim evan because i want to get your thoughts on this as well you know, who do we call and, and what where do we go to? And I say that because there was in my immediate community, um, someone called the cops for a robbery in progress, right? And they came and broke the door down. Thankfully, everything was fine. And it was, you know, that's not actually what was happening. But... To a certain degree, it does make certain people, even in the black community, feel safer, especially the elderly. You know, they're living alone and they want to know. I, yeah. I want to I want someone right. with a firearm to come protect me well, if I feel unsafe. What do you what do you say to that person, Evan?
1: Well, let's take the firearm out first, because the firearm isn't always necessary in a lot of these situations. But when
0: it is necessary, when, oh. when they're being faced in imminent danger, that's what I'm saying.
1: Well, but even then, so it, is, is a firearm being met with a
0: firearm? Yeah, that's so what like, I'm saying. Some type well, of imminent danger.
1: Okay, so in that case, what I believe is in the long run, this is a vision. What I, what I hear Brie is saying, for, at least for me, is a vision. So we have enough systems in place that the absolute last resort is someone within the local community who is not a police officer as we know it, but is trained in every other interventionist de-escalation tactic. But in the absolute situation when a firearm is necessary, he's also trained in proper firearm use. That's what I see as a long-term vision down the line. But are we talking now about something happening tomorrow or down the line? Because something happening tomorrow does not have the systems in place. It doesn't have the educational systems in place. It doesn't have the community organizations having a stronger presence than the police forces. I understand if somebody, if this happens tomorrow, if somebody is currently met with a firearm, and unlike like not to the situation is talking about, but let's say someone has a farm and they're able to hide, for example, and they actually have some cover. I understand if the person has no idea what to do and ends up calling the police, because that's the only person in that specific split second instance where they think defend them. But the problem we have is that the police end up doing so much harm that this person even has to make a calculation. I had a friend who was being mugged, fought off the mugger, and then he called the police and the police slammed his face against the of the car. And he had to prove he wasn't being mugged. So my point is that people have to do too many calculations in their head right now. Down the line, I see this community uh, representative interventionist who is absolutely using armed violence as a last result. Right now, people got to make these dangerous calculations. Sometimes it would be the police. Sometimes they'll get hurt making that calculation. And that's the problem. Yeah.
3: And even that calculation is so sad to me, because to your point, Selena, like, yes, we do have community members who are vulnerable and are not getting the public safety that their taxpayer dollars are paying for. Because the reality is that, like, you're in a domestic violence dispute between two black people. The the person who's more vulnerable in that situation is worrying, if I call the police, I want them to get this person off of me. I don't necessarily want them to kill that person, right? Like I don't want that person to now get caught up in a system and now they can't pay bills. And again, I've seen people in those situations. You're The father of your children is getting abusive and you're like, well, I want to stop the violence that's happening right now. What I don't want is for the livelihood of my children's you know, other parent. Um, to be threatened and for that to also affect my life because now i have children without a father at all and what i wanted was somebody off of me in that moment and what i didn't want was them to come in guns blazing so i hear and i think that was the question that evan was asking uh or or was like posing is that like sometimes we think that we need someone coming guns blazing and what we need is like someone we trust to be able to diffuse it without that and if we trusted that that could happen we think that but in this current world we're so um we we one don't trust our neighbors but we also don't trust that like people can be de-escalated so we sort of think oh no if this person is threatening me I need someone with a gun or I need to be with a gun as opposed to like oh wait there are people and that's something that happened after Makia Bryant all of these people are coming out um on social media and saying I have broken up knife fights I have broken up fights where people were armed and I was not, and all I had was a whistle and I'd been able to do that. And so what are we saying about the training that some are having and some are not, and why we're not investing in those who do have the relationships? Because sometimes it's not even skills. Sometimes it's like, I'm not going to stop for police regardless because I see them as aggressors, but I will stop for the local pastor who I know has known me since I was five years old and who was saying, son, don't do this, right? I will stop for like, The OG on the corner who is like, wait, no, I have the brawn and the respect of this community to be able to say this is what we're not going to do. And again, I love using New York as an example because we have a community um, interventionist system um, and a crisis response system that comes together in situations like that. People will call on Erica Ford and say, listen, I know that these two people are about to walk down the block and fight in the parking lot over there. A life camp bus needs to meet them out there. And she breaks up the fight. And she doesn't do it with a gun she doesn't do it with the taser she doesn't do it with the baton and she does it because she has the voice she has the community respect to do it and like there are people and groups like that all over the country that can do that work they just don't have the budgets to be able to do it all the time
0: well 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 here's the the question to that bria the follow-up is so what actionable steps need to be taken so that we can fund these community resources to intervene and we can one day live in a world without police? Mm -hmm. What needs to be done?
3: Well, thank you for that, because I do think that abolition can sound so theoretical, but it really does start as small as defund. And that that can feel vague, but it's actually such a clear um, imperative where every city council has control over budgets, perhaps maybe your board of trustees, but you can go to your city council's next budget. And I think that will be happening this year around like May or June for the, the September like beginning of the financial year. Um, but you can go to them and say, listen, currently the New York City police budget is $5 billion. We're not going to defund that overnight, maybe, but we can absolutely take away a million dollars and fund the work that Erica Ford is doing so that now what she's doing with three buses, she can do with 20, right? What she's doing with... 30 employees, she can do with 100. And now they can actually set up their own numbers. So you can call them directly and say, listen, I don't even want to go through 911. I want to go straight to Erica Ford. I know the services she offers. And I want someone on her team at Life Camp to get over here. Like that's the kind of things we can very immediately do. And that doesn't mean that it's just the big cities. If you live in any kind of town, my hometown is, a, is an incorporated village. We have our own police force. I can go back to Freeport Village in New York and say, how much money is being given to them? How much money can be given to our local recreation center? How much can be given towards local counselors? How much can be given towards local social workers? And those are like real budget things that we can all talk about. And I think it's really important for, for people to feel like you can be participatory and you can, you can decide, listen, um, what is making people feel unsafe in my community is that there's a lot of sex trafficking. And what we need is more resources for that because police are not actually stopping that. Or maybe what's needed on my campus um, is more uh, gender responsive. Like you can decide what safety looks like for your community and talk about that. Maybe that's more resources for anti-xenophobia efforts, right? And stop Asian hate. Like those are things and we don't think of that because we just think of public safety as all of that goes to police, EMS, fire department, and there are so many other recipients of those budgetary resources. And that is just a beginning step. And once you get that, those turning, people are able to realize like, wait a second, there's, I have an idea of how we can be safe. safe There was lighting, all of that.
0: Uh, Laura Rose left a comment via Facebook that I want to get to. She says, I know many community workers social workers, teachers, et cetera, mm-hmm. who have diffused plenty of high-risk situations without using violence, guns, or carceral methods. Defund the police. Evan, wh- what would you say is the pathway to police abolition? And is it realistic to expect the nation to abolish police, at least in our lifetimes?
1: Not, not with the information and systems we have now. But I think people get too caught up in that. Like I said, it's not snap your fingers. No, I don't, I don't know who is saying snap your fingers. I think most people are saying we need to first have this vision. If we can't even have this vision, it's never going to happen. So first have this vision and then work on the steps to get there. The first one is, yes, defund. I know you also say reimagine. I say also revolutionize and reallocate funds to many of the uh, institutions that Bray was talking about. I also think, and it was kind of a side, but I think it's relevant, focus on, we have an booming tech community that actually knows how to do 3D printers of guns? Can somebody form more non-lethal types of forces that are very useful? And I think that goes to your earlier question, Selena, when we kept focusing on the word gun. What if there was something that could have stopped somebody, but not killed somebody? And I think we already have some of that stuff around, but I think that needs to be looked into more. And the last thing I'll say is let's reimagine Micaiah Bryan situation. What if it wasn't armed cops, but the deans that went to my public school in the Bronx that were able to break this up like they did all the time when someone had a gun, like my friend, I'll just call him G, who had a knife three times the size of that on his waistband and somehow continued to be alive? The other students I went to somehow continued to be alive. People know how to do this. They just have to believe that the life is worth preserving in the first place. And that needs to be the system in place that is promoted by the superiors.
0: Absolutely. So we do have to wrap this conversation. But before we do, uh, just quickly, Bria, I just wanted to give you a few seconds to give your last final words in the fight to abolish police and ultimately Mm -hmm. protect black and brown and vulnerable communities
3: yeah just the the thing that I would say I love when people refer to this as reimagining because I do think we just have to have an imagination um I think right now we're thinking through the confines of what we've always known um, but we can really sit with ourselves and say when is the safest that I've ever felt and how can I replicate that in the world around me um, a world with abolition is a world with universal health care a world without abolition for me is a world without student debt like there are a lot of reasons that people are choosing to scam or to hurt other people and a lot of it boils down to not getting a lot of the support when they were. Did we have a technical?
0: Oh, okay. I think we're having a technical difficulty with Bria, uh, but thank you so much, Bria, for joining us Uh, and th- the points that you made today. We did have some technical difficulties, but I'll just wrap the segment by saying this. It's definitely time for something different. Uh, We've been calling for police reform and we've got it, but that has not stopped Number a number and a number of deaths from happening and, and, and fatalities. I mean, you know, Eric Gardner was killed on camera. We watched uh, Jacob Blake be paralyzed on camera in front of his own children. Uh, you know, we're still having cases like Breonna Taylor and and you know Adam Toledo. Yeah, so the reform tactics aren't what we aren't necessarily um, what we need. It is to me a means to an end. Um, just like defunding the police is a means to end. But I'm all for uh, thinking about how we can reimagine public safety so that it is conducive to our communities. This is a system that is working as it was designed to oppress, marginalize, and capitalize and exploit black and brown bodies. And that's what's happening. And that's why it's time for us to dismantle, disband, and just do away with this whole system. Uh, On that note, I want to thank again, Bria, for joining us for this conversation about the police abolition movement. And before we end the show, uh, I do want to just end again on a positive note. We have a new segment here. It's called Black Women Rise where we talk about the black women who are killing it, blazing trails and raising the bar. And on today's episode or segment of Black Women Rise, I actually wanna give kudos and flowers to Natasha, S. Alford. She is known as the People's Journalist. She is an award-winning journalist, digital host, and millennial media executive. Her titles include Vice President of Digital Content, and she and a senior correspondent at the Grio. She is also a CNN political analyst, uh, and she has been doing so much of the work when it comes to reporting on the issues that directly affect our community, whether that's social justice, education or politics now i've known natasha for years and i've watched her and admired her work it is so inspiring uh the work that she's done even in um as far as puerto rico she's been you know traveling there and just really uplifting black and brown voices so kudos flowers and celebration for natasha alford uh one of my sheroes in my head uh who i absolutely adore and i just want to say we see you natasha keep rising and keep doing it all for black women. On that note, I want to thank everyone for joining us for another episode of Be Her Talk with Selena Hill. Um, Remember, continue to support us by buying us a coffee. A simple donation will support the issues and causes that you care about. It gives us the support so we can support you and continue to have these conversations. Thank you again, and we'll see you next Sunday. Take care, everybody.